Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 11, Episode 9. Today, I'm speaking with author Beth Dooley. Beth is a James Beard Award-winning food writer and columnist for the Taste Section of the Minneapolis-St. Paul Star Tribune. She appears regularly on KARE 11 Television and NPR Appetites with Tom Cran. Dooley co-authored The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen with Sean Sherman, winner of the James Beard Award for Best American Cookbook in 2018. Her other titles include Savory Sweet Preserves from a Northern Kitchen, In Winter's Kitchen, Growing Roots and Breaking Bread in the Northern Heartland, Minnesota Bounty, the Farmer's Market Cookbook, The Northern Heartland Kitchen, Saving the Seasons in the Northern Heartland. Dooley is an endowed chair at the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture, MISA, and she is currently researching and writing her next book, The Perennial Kitchen, a guide for climate-savvy cooks. With recipes and kitchen tips, The Perennial Kitchen connects home cooks to growers and makers to create a delicious future. I look forward to having you here in my conversation with Beth Dooley. I really had a great time talking to her. I love her work. I love her books and the topics that she writes about. And getting a chance to talk to one of my favorite authors was a great joy. I'm taking you now to my conversation with Beth Dooley. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I am so very happy to be talking to author Beth Dooley, who is the author or co-author of several cookbooks, including Savoring the Seasons of the Northern Heartland, The Northern Heartland's Kitchen, Minnesota's Bounty, The Birchwood Cafe Cookbook, Savory Sweet, Simple Preserves from a Northern Kitchen, which I really loved, I'm just going to say, Sweet Nature, A Cook's Guide to Using Honey and Maple Syrup, which I also really loved, The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, which, which was just amazing. I really got to tout that one. In Winter's Kitchen is her memoir about finding her place in the Midwestern food scene, and the latest cookbook is The Perennial Kitchen, and it's out now available from all uh, major retailers. We're going to have links to all these in the bio, so you can just click and uh, purchase. Beth, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. Now, I want to talk to you about where you grew up and uh, where, where are you from? I'm from suburban Minnesota, from suburban New Jersey. Um, I grew up in Short Hills, which if anybody is familiar with John Updike, he wrote about in uh, Goodbye Columbus, and oh, yeah. uh, it's a very suburban sort of John Cheever's kind of town. Um, and we moved to Minnesota about uh, almost 45 years ago, so I've been a Minnesota resident for a long, long time. Great. And now, I like to ask guests this question. This is, I think, one of my stock questions, but I always find it to be very fascinating. When you were young, did you have any people that influenced your love of food and cooking when you were young? Yeah, I had a grandmother who was a fabulous cook and made everything from scratch. And I used to go to the farmer's markets with her on Saturday mornings, um, as well as to the farm stands. And she knew all the farmers and they would swap recipes. She would bring them recipes clipped out of the New York Star Ledger and um, they'd tell her what to do with their cabbages or their sweet corn or their tomatoes. You know, Jersey is known for its beautiful tomatoes. And so, yeah, I grew up making pies with her and uh, making tomato salads or tomato sauce, that kind of thing. Now, much of your work has revolved around the food of the Northern Heartland. Now, I know to our listeners outside of the United States, um, America seems like it's fairly homogenous, but we have different climates. And we have actually different foods and many different natives foods. What, how did you decide that this would be a focus of your work? 
I think it's because when we moved to Minnesota from New Jersey, I was fascinated by the farmer's markets. We have amazing farmer's markets. And it reminded me so much of my childhood when I'd go and explore those farmer's markets and meet the farmers and find out you know, why their carrots tasted so much better than the carrots I was getting from the grocery store, for instance, that were being shipped in from California. I just became captivated with the flavors. And then as the CSA movement in Minnesota began to grow, I joined a CSA and became really good friends with uh, our farmer and spent a lot of time out there helping harvest the vegetables and putting together the boxes. I wrote recipes at the time that appeared in the newspaper about what to do with that produce. And so I got to know the farmers, I got to know the land, I got to begin to understand pretty early on the influence, how and where that food is grown especially the quality of the soil makes in terms of flavor. And from there, I became interested in how that impacts the quality of our landscape, um, our water, our air, the pollinators, the wildlife, you know, all of that. And so that kind of led me down that path. And, but understanding that really soil informs flavor, it also informs health, the, um, the nutrients in the plants, all those kinds of things. You were involved in using local native products for cooking, um, and you, you've written a lot about this. You champion such things as honey, kernza, which we're going to discuss, and maple syrup. Can you talk to me how you became interested in um, these local products and how they kind of changed the cooking game for you? Yeah, um, I think being a member of a CSA, like many people, um, having to respond to what was in the box without being able to go to the supermarket with a list of ingredients for a recipe really changed how I approach food. I had to become much more a much more responsive cook. And, um, and that also got me interested in what grows here, what has always grown here, um, you know, before Europeans arrived. And I learned a lot of that when I began working with Chef Sean Sherman, the indigenous food chef, um, because we really focused on the plants that were natural, that were native to this area. And that too helped me understand why and how terroir influences flavor, um, why and how soil makes a difference, all those kinds of things. And because we spent a lot of time up around Lake Superior, which is the land that is known for wild rice. I mean, that's a really special iconic ingredient that doesn't grow anyplace else in the world. And so I became fascinated with that. Like, what can we do with it? And why does the rice that comes from one particular area near one particular lake taste different than the rice that comes from another different area, another different lake? And the same thing with, um, you know, it's not indigenous, but wheat, for instance, you know, there are different flavors to the different wheats. And those are reflected when you go to bake a loaf of sourdough bread, for instance. Why and how does that happen? And where did those wheats come from? And why does freshly milled flour behave differently than flour that comes in a five pound bag, you know, from the grocery store? So, you know, all of those kinds of things that relate to flavor have always piqued my interest. And in when you begin to drill down on them and follow those threads, you learn so much about our natural world, about our ecology, about other cultures, that kind of thing. I'm very excited to talk to you about the topic of Kernza, which is something I didn't know about until I started reading your work. 
Can you talk to our listeners about Kernza and what it is exactly and how it's used? Yeah, Kernza is um, an inter, it's actually, um, scientific name is intermediate wheatgrass. And what it is, is um, varieties of wheat that have been crossed with grasses. And so just like the grass on our lawns, for instance, it's a perennial, it will come back every year. Wheat is a annual crop. The wheat that we grow for milling for most flowers is an annual crop that gets ripped up every year and replanted every year. That process is really difficult on our land. And one yeah. of the things our universities are trying to help farmers understand is that the monocropping of corn and soy, which are summer annual crops, are devastating our landscape, our water, our air, um, and really compromising our food because those crops require tremendous amount of toxic fer fertilizers and pesticides to grow. And the ripping out and replanting of annual crops is forcing us to lose so much topsoil at the rate of something like, you know, I can't remember the statistic, but we're losing a lot of topsoil and it takes 500 years to replace an inch of topsoil. You need good, rich topsoil to grow nutritious food. It's going into the Mississippi River, washing downstream, and that's the cause of the dead zone that's destroying so much of that Mississippi River basin. Um, the dead zone now is larger than my home state of New Jersey, for instance. So if we can interrupt the um, growing of just corn and soy in our landscape, which um, now covers almost 98% of our cropland, if we can interrupt that by providing farmers with different kinds of crops to grow that provide ecological services that actually retain the topsoil, that shelter pollinators and wildlife, that return nutrients to the soil, that capture carbon, that st stem water, those are perennial crops that are incredibly nutritious and they come back every year and they don't wreak the kind of havoc that monocrops of corn and soy do. So what we really need is more diversity on the land. We need cover crops. We need to have um, perennials that are edibles. It's, it's Kernza, it's also things like hazelnuts which grow incredibly well all across the United States. Elderberries, for instance, which are remarkably nutritious and grow like weeds in all kinds of different altitudes and in different places. You know, those kinds of crops can do a lot of good on our land. And that's one of the things that, um, you know, Kernza does. And Kernza um, is very, very nutritious. It, it behaves like wheat when it's ground into flour, but it's a little bit different. Um, it has, you know, one of, one of its other growing attributes is that it once it's established, it can sink its roots about 20 feet down into the ground, which is remarkable. And the value of that is that it makes it really, really resilient to the swings we're seeing in our climate. So it's able to withstand droughts because it, its tap roots are so deep, it can reach water that far deep down. But because of that, it also can withstand the many floods that we're having, especially in our area, because we're having these episodic floods. Um, it's a very sturdy plant. The other thing about Kernza is that it provides um, three uses on the farm. 
it uh, comes up in the spring. And so if there are animals on the land, cattle or uh, sheep or, or goats, they can graze it down. And then it will return and produce a kernel like wheat. It can be then uh, harvested and threshed and uh, then milled. And then at the end of the season, the animals can take it down again and the roots will remain in the ground. So it's a really valuable plant. It provides a lot of services for that. And one of the issues is, you know, I don't begrudge the farmers because of, of the crops they're growing, the corn right. and soybeans. We just need to give them something else to grow. They're businessmen. And, you know, they're not going to stop growing these cheap, devastating crops because nice little me from Minnesota wants them to, right? Um, right. So that's one of the things that Kernza can do. Well, I mean, that's something I, I wanted to ask you next because we're kind of at a juncture right now where, so when, when I was young, and, and I'm dating myself by saying this, but when I was a kid, you know, wheat was it, flour, there was flour, there was nothing else. I mean, they're really, yeah. I think in the late 70s after the nutritional food boom happened, there was, I think, bran, and then there was a whole wheat flour, but still, right. that was it. Now yeah. I can go to the local Safeway just a few blocks away and I can get sorghum flour, I can get amaranth flour. You know, these mm -hmm. are things that are just on the shelf now. And they used to be something that you were had a hard time finding. But it, it, we're also having a thing where people are saying, I, I have celiac disease or I'm gluten intolerant. And people also want more nutritious flour. Do you think we're at a junction, a juncture where we kind of need to strike why the iron is hot because people are demanding alternate flours? I think it's a great time to be looking at alternate flours. And, you know, one of these people should know about the issues that, um, gluten is causing is, you know, they're, they're multitudinous. First of all, the flour that has been growing to this day, something like 90 95% of the flour grown throughout the world is coming from one variety of wheat. Okay. Right. And that's the variety of wheat that was a cross between the um, short stubby Japanese variety of wheat and Turkey red which was the wheat that came here from the German Mennonites back in the 1800s. It was planted in Kansas and uh, Western Minnesota and up into the Dakotas. It's a very vigorous um, type of wheat that produces a big fat berry. It's great for milling into flour. It's the, um, the wheat that put Minneapolis on the map and made it the breadbasket of the world because that's where um, General Mills was founded. It started as the Washburn Crosby um, flour mill. So that has been primarily the source of wheat for most of the world for a long, long time. Now, the issue with that is, um, is that when, you know, some food scientists believe that when that low shrubby wheat was crossed with the tall um, turkey red wheat, that was done because if you fertilize the tall turkey red wheat, it would collapse, it would flop over, it would bolt and it would become moldy before you could get it out of the field. By crossing it, you created a wheat variety that was very easy to um, fertilize and then to harvest quickly because it was lower, it's easier to harvest. Now, in order to do that, that wheat is a very lazy plant. It needs a lot of chemicals and fertilizers in order, in order to grow. It's also treated with all kinds of chemicals and pesticides. It's typically milled using very high heat and then it's bromide, you know, bromiated and packaged and everything else. So we don't know whether or not people that are suffering from um, different sort of 
gluten allergies are suffering from eating that kind of wheat. Um, because there are studies and there are people, and it's mostly anecdotal information that if they're eating heritage varieties of wheat, they don't have the same um, reaction to them. Now, the other thing is that all of our baked goods, if they're baked commercially, contain an, a, um, an extract actually of gluten called um, vital gluten that's right. used in most commercial baking. And it's also used as an ingredient because it's a stabilizer. It's used as an ingredient in commercial salad dressings and in hamburgers and things like that. So as humans, we've eaten more gluten for the past 50 years than uh, any other humans on the planet, you know, over time. And so maybe that our, our systems are simply overloaded with gluten. So there are, you know, again, that's another theory as to why people are reacting to um, products that are made with wheat. Again, there is evidence, anecdotal evidence um, from people who say they don't suffer. Now, this is not celiac. That's a much different, um, you know, that's a much different issue. But for people that say that they're gluten intolerant, um, it may be that they would have as much trouble if they're eating um, the heritage for, you know, products made with the heritage varieties of wheat that are ground into flour. It also depends on how that flour is ground because if it's ground using a stone mill, for instance, it contains more of the nutrients, more of the oils, it'll have more of the fiber, it'll, um, you know, you'll digest it more slowly, you'll, you'll get more out of it. And so people may not react as strongly to that for those reasons too. Um, but people should also know that Kernza is not gluten-free. It does contain gluten, but it's a different balance of those gluten proteins because right. gluten is two proteins. Um, and so the balance is different. So some people don't react as strongly to um, Kernza flour as they do to say a white wheat flour. So that's, you know, that's kind of the, and, and I think, you know, using all these different flours has got to be good for us, especially if they're stone milled. Oat flour is wonderful. Um, hazelnut flour is great. Both oat flour and hazelnut flour are gluten-free flours. Um, corn flour is gluten-free. Rye flour is not, but it too contains a different balance of gluten proteins. Um, buckwheat flour is gluten-free. So there are all these different flours that I think are really, really worth checking out or blending into a wheat flour um, just to, you know, get more nutrients and, uh, and better flavor. I want to talk to you about um, one of your cookbooks that I'm really, really excited about. Um, this is the Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. Yeah. You wrote this with uh, Sean Sherman, and you would eventually win a James Beard Award for this. Yeah. This is an impressive work. And, you know, just with what we're talking about um, just now about Kernza and wheat varieties, this seemed to have, you know, quite a bit of work into it because you talk about Indigenous uh, flavor profiles, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, juniper uh, berries, etc. Do you want to talk about how the research went for this book? Because it seems very well written, very comprehensive, but also fun and delicious at the same time. How hard was this book to write for you guys? Thank you. It was so much fun because what was remarkable to me, it was eye-opening, was how much food I step over every day I walk out of yeah. the house. You know, I mean, we were testing a, one of um, Sean's recipes. I think it was for bison that was seasoned with juniper. And I said, oh, darn, you know, I didn't get to the co-op to pick up juniper today when we were testing it. 
And he said, well, you know, there's some right outside in your front yard. <laughs> I just hadn't put two, to, two together. There were juniper shrubs right outside her front yard. Same thing with cedar and with um, wild mint, with um, bergamot, with a lot of those different, they're indigenous plants. And his, he really wanted to drill down and focus on foods that are indigenous, pre-colonial foods that are indigenous to our region for that cookbook. Since then, he's expanded his work to work with different tribes across the country, as well as in North and South America, um, up into Canada and, and down into Mexico and South America, to work with them on focusing their, um, you know, focusing on their traditions using those pre-colonial indigenous foods. But I found it, you know, really fun and fascinating to realize how much we could eat if you just stepped outside. You know, I walk over plantain every day. There's um, there are mushrooms that grow right, you know, this big hen of the woods mushroom that grows on a, a stump right outside. So those kinds of things that I just hadn't paid attention to and maybe it was, I was a little afraid of. So it gave me more confidence to explore things and to just um, begin playing with them. And frankly, a lot of those flavors and those foods are so simple. I think that's what was interesting too is, you know, by using um, maple, for instance, as a seasoning, not just as a sweetener, was eye-opening um, because it, it adds almost a woodsy, smoky flavor to things. Working with wild rice and wild flour was interesting because those are really unique products. And um, just, you know, again, working off flavors and seeing what goes with what was fascinating. You talk about many things in the book that um, we're familiar with, like, uh, you know, heritage varieties of corn, uh, you, know, you talk about Kernza, you talk about, um, you know, honey and, uh, you know, we even mentioned, um, something like, uh, the different flavoring components, but I know there was a lot of things in the book that you're probably, were probably new to you. Was there anything that gave you pause that kind of, that you were kind of like, wow, I've never heard of this before. <laughs> yeah. Things like, um, oh gosh, you know, birch syrup, for instance, I'd never yeah. worked with birch syrup before. Right. It's, it's, remarkable. I mean, you kind of think, oh, it's going to be like maple syrup, and it's really very bitter. Um, yeah. It has sort of a molasses kind of flavor to it, but a really dark, bitter molasses flavor to it. So I wouldn't use it in baked, you know, anything that's baked, or I wouldn't use it as a sweetener, but it's fabulous um, brushed on uh, game, for instance. Oh, yeah. Um, because, you know, it, it can be used as a barbecue sauce or be a component in a barbecue sauce. Um, maybe you can add a little bit to a recipe that you're making beans with, um, dried beans that might be something close to a not very sweet baked, um, you know, uh, New England style baked bean. Um, you know, it's, it's really good for that. It's very potent. It's very strong tasting. Um, I think some of the really uh, like elderberries, I mean, those are super interesting, but they're very, very tannic. So you want to be careful with them. They're super nutritious. Um, and I've, I've used them again, elderberry syrup. It, it is great if it's cut with either honey or maple syrup and then, then added to a lemonade or a sweeter kind of a drink, but that too can be used um, in savory, savory ways. So. Those kinds of things I think are interesting, but you have to taste them first and and um, and be curious. You must have received a lot of feedback about this book because I imagine it um, was very kind of maybe affirming to a lot of Native American peoples who read it or people who are naturalists who you know who eat these foods. What was some of the feedback that you got on the book? 
I think, you know, I think what made me feel really good is um, how proud people are when they recover their traditions, when they rediscover their traditions and recognize the value of them. You know, there's um, there's a, one of the few urban reservations, um, native land in uh, Minneapolis, not far from where we live, called Little Earth. And um, there's a lot of work going on there to rediscover, reconnect with a lot of tribal traditions. And of course, food is so integrated into all of those traditions. And um, now there's a, a native um, lacrosse team that plays there. And there are a number of other tribes that are fielding teams and they all play there, which is super fun because it's a much different style of game. Um, and, and all of those um, games, all of those traditions involve some kind of feast or some kind of food um, and usually native food. And so what's fun too is to see um, a lot of the youth gardens that are, that are being created all over the country that are engaging youth um, in learning those native food ways in ricing and trapping and hunting and maple sugaring and uh, you know smoking. And, um, and that was one of the, the interesting things about working with Sean was recognizing how simple and accessible these different um, cooking techniques are and then taking some pride in them and, and understanding that they're incredibly helpful that they make you strong, they make you happy, you know, all those kinds of things. So those are all part of those traditions as well. And we have a home up um, on Lake Superior, Madeline Island, which is um, one of the lands that was settled by the Anishinaabe eons ago. And there's a lot of work being done to reclaim a lot of the um, native traditions here. And so people are planting uh, Three Sisters Gardens, for instance, and, um, hosting uh, festivals where um, there are some indigenous pra practitioners who are showing how to make a dugout canoe or birch bark canoe or to weave cedar baskets, things that um, again are, are part of that heritage and are now becoming part of contemporary life, which I think is thrilling and, and people are taking pride in them, they should. And it's, it's great that they're sharing them. Um, I want to talk to you about your book that I really was very much head over heels in love with, and that's Savory Sweet Preserves from a Northern Kitchen oh. that you wrote with your co-author, Matt Nilsson. Yeah. Now, I want to be clear that I don't want to just say this is a canning book because that would be a disservice to you. <laughs> Can you talk about this work and what it was like to write this with your co-author? Yeah, again, that was really fun. Um, you know, Meta is, uh, she's Danish. Um, and so she grew up in Denmark and, um, she too had a grandmother who loved to cook. And the thing I really enjoy about her is that she has such a sense of bright flavors. And also because Denmark, like Minnesota has a very short growing season. So we celebrate the foods as quickly as we can, but we have so much, there's no way to, um, eat everything that's coming in during the height of our growing season. And so we do need to figure out how to preserve it. Well, because we have refrigerators and we have freezers, <laughs> there's no need to, um, to simmer up vats of tomatoes during tomato season when it's incredibly hot out. You can yeah. freeze those tomatoes and make a beautiful tomato sauce that you can can when you've got time in the middle of January. The same thing with um, 
say, you know, cranberries or with uh, strawberries or raspberries that are that are coming into their peak right now, um, you can make small batches of them and keep them in the freezer or the refrigerator. So our call is to not think that we have to stark our larders because we don't need a larder anymore down in a root cellar. We can make small quantities of things and keep them in the refrigerator to have them available and accessible to us right now or freeze them. The really fun thing though about working with Meta is that we didn't want this to be just a sweet cookbook. We didn't want to just right. have jams and jellies and that kind of thing. We wanted to, to focus on um, the you know pickles, but also on um, on preserves that, that could be used, uh, you know, condiments that could be used both in savory applications and sweet applications. So yes, there are plenty of, of sweet jams, but there are also jams that are seasoned with bay and, uh, or sage or rosemary um, that could be used on a cheese plate or they could be brushed over grilled chicken or they could be served with breakfast and a, um, on a scone or um, served at the end of the meal if you're having a cheese plate at the end of the meal, that kind of thing. So we really had fun with that. Well, yeah, I want to be clear with for the listening audience too. Like, there is no just like strawberry jam. No. There is no just like yeah, no. <laughs> the, everything is very much like. I really feel like this showed off you guys' gourmet cooking attributes because this is the kind of stuff that I would expect to buy like maybe in Napa from like a high end <laughs> kind of place. But it's, it's stuff that's accessible, the stuff that you'd have in your garden, around home, or at your farmer's market. Right. Is there anything from the book that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things that we really enjoyed doing was, uh, you know, just things that we never thought to do, for instance. Um, things like the, uh, oh, we did a, um, God, there's so many of them. It's hard to pick. It's like, who's your favorite kid, right? Um, yeah. We did a strawberry cranberry preserve that's really interesting mm. because it had some ginger in it. And um, and most people don't think of putting strawberries and cranberries together, but cranberries are so tart and strawberries are so sweet. And then to cut it with a little heat, we put pepper in a lot of things. We used juniper in things. Um, we did, uh, we dried some things, but we didn't completely dry them. So they got leathery, for instance, with the sun-dried tomatoes, not sun-dried tomatoes, with the oven tomatoes. Um, they're yeah. uh, cherry tomatoes that are dried just until they're not quite the leathery stage. And then you can hold on to them for a while, but they add so much flavor just as they are to a salad, for instance, or to toss um, into a stir fryer to use in a soup later on, that kind of thing. So we, we wanted to sort of give people a range of what they could do. And if they don't stick with the flavors that we propose in those recipes, we encourage people to branch out and use either what they have or what they like. You know, if you're not a fan of sage, don't use sage, use something else, use rosemary, use thyme, use other flavors that you enjoy. So it's just, it's again, with all of our work, it's more to get people enthused about getting going, getting in the kitchen, it's a gateway to experimentation and to joy, really. That's that's kind of what all of our work is premised on. I really, I, I love it. I, I just thought it was so fun and clever and there was so much, I, I just can't wait to really cook. So oh, excellent. I wanna thank you for that. Yeah. I wanna, I wanna talk next about your book where you have a cook's guide to using honey and maple syrup. Mm -hmm. Now, this must have been 
this must have involved quite a bit of research as well. What did you learn uh, when you started delving into cooking with honey and maple syrup? Well, we learned about the range of, of both of those ingredients, that they have really wide um, breadth of flavor ranges. I mean, I, you know, I always knew that there was a difference between the lighter maple syrup and the really dark maple syrup, but I didn't understand what lay in between those, for instance, and how to use them. The same thing with honey. Um, we work with a lot of different beekeepers. One of the fun things about my work is that I don't want to just buy these products off the shelf. I like to go out and talk to the people that are making them. So, and those people are probably the best guides to what it is they're growing and then creating and selling. So Brian Ames, for instance, of Ames Honey in Minnesota um, focuses on single source honey. Now you can't tell a bee, you know, that bee can only feast on basswood flowers, for instance, but right. his fields are very, very diverse. And, um, and he does kind of have his hives in fields that are mostly basswood flowers. And so those, you know, bees, because they're like, oh, great, whatever I want to feast on is right nearby, they'll focus on those and they'll, they'll feast off those. Same thing with, um, say, the uh, buckwheat flower honey. I mean, that's so different. And so there's a, a huge range in that book. We give a guide to those different pr flavor profiles and what they're best at. We also wanted to do the same thing with maple syrup because really, really dark, dark, dark maple syrup does have kind of a bitter note and it's wonderful with dark meats, for instance. And so when you season it with something peppery or um, hot, uh, and use it as a base for meats. It's terrific. So we, we wanted people to think of these two natural products as something more than just sweeteners, as something more than just an ingredient you put in your tea in the morning or use to make a ginger cake with, with for instance. Um, so that, that was what we had fun with experimenting within that book was, was beginning to appreciate the, um, the range of, of flavors and what those those ingredients can do for us in the kitchen. Now, I wanted to talk next about um, your bare bones cooking class. Yeah. And you do this with your son, Kip. Yeah. I thought it was kind of really neat. And I wanted to like tell the guests who are listening to the podcast about this program and also provide a link to it they can, so they can utilize it themselves. Yeah, it was really fun. We've, we've sort of put it on hiatus because um, everybody's so tired of Zoom right now that uh, what we did was a six week class that um, worked with a cooking club really um, on the basic techniques that once you have those basic techniques or understand them and feel comfortable using them, you can cook anything you want to. So we began with high heat roasting, we went into saute, we did stir fry, um, braise, um, immersions as in soups and sauces, that kind of thing. And so once you understand how to do those, you can make, you have at your fingertips the best way to roast vegetables or to put together a sheet pan dinner or to put together a beautiful soup by balancing the flavors, um, how to know how far to take a sauce before it's done, how to taste for balance. And we included in those, um, those different lessons, um, interviews with different makers that 
gave insights into those flavor ways. So it it off it was sort of a multi-dimensional look at how to become, you know, a, a better cook or maybe how to feel more confident if you, especially for people that are so tied to recipes, here's how to become a little more independent in the kitchen, really. Um, how to, you know, look at what you have in your refrigerator and your pantry first before you run out and shop because you may have everything you need. Um, the whole premise started when, when it was during the pandemic and Kip who was living in uh, Washington DC at the time called me and said, mom, I don't have anything to eat. And I said, well, <laughs> what do you have right now? He said, well, all the stores are closed. And, um, and I, oh, you know, yeah. I don't feel like masking up and doing all that. So I said, well, what do you have? And he said, well, I've got some, got a half a pound of spaghetti and um, I've got a, you know, a little bit of Chardonnay and I've got, uh, I said, well, do you have any butter? Yeah, I've got some butter. And I've got a little bit of Parmesan cheese and I've got a shriveled clove of garlic. I said, well, we're going to start by browning butter because brown butter is one of those magical ingredients. It's a wonderful trick. You know, there's, it's the easiest sauce in the world. So we browned the butter. He boiled the pasta. He, um, you know, swirled a little of the pasta water because it's got some of the, um, starch from cooking the pasta in it into the brown butter. He actually, oh, I know he had a little lemon. So we added a little lemon. He added some Chardonnay. He had some garlic that he uh, pressed into that, um, tossed, you know, drained and tossed the pasta with that and hit it with a little bit of Parmesan cheese and then, you know, finished the bottle of wine. I mean, it was just a fine dinner. It wasn't gourmet by any means, but it was good enough. And it was much better than saying I have nothing to eat. So I think Part of the, you know, the whole bare bones idea was start with what you have and, uh, and work from there. And again, it, it works along that aesthetic of, I think that we've become so accustomed to running out and grabbing whatever it is we want in the moment, when in fact, everything we have, everything we need may be right at our fingertips. And that was the premise behind um, Savory Sweet. That was one of the premises behind the Sous Chef's Indigenous Kitchen is, you know, what do you have now? What can you use now? Um, and it's a way to kind of wean ourselves off this consumerist approach to cooking. Your cookbooks really show a love of, I mean, cookbooks. And, in the, and I really got a <laughs> sense from your cookbooks that you love, you know, writing about food. How, how I want to ask you kind of a two-part question. Where did this start for you? Where, where did you, where did you, would you always think that you wanted to do this or how did you get into it? And also who are some of the cookbook writers and food writers that you love? Thank you for asking, you know, because, um, well, there, there are a number of things that, um, that happened. First of all, I, I cooked a lot with my grandmother and I was fascinated by, I loved being with her in the kitchen. I loved, you know, being around things that smelled good, that tasted good, playing with them. Um, and I wasn't a terribly good student in high school. And um, so I would sneak uh, Joy of Cooking up to my room when I was supposed to be doing my math homework or something. And I'd read recipes because I thought they were interesting. They engage your imagination. In yeah. my mind, um, recipes are kind of stories with happy endings. I mean, nobody's going to write a recipe for something that doesn't work, right? And yeah. so, um, you know, I was just, I, I kind of had a sense early on that, I would love to write about food and I would love to write recipes. Well, going forward in college, you know, I, I 
you know, I'm now almost in my 70s. And so I was in college during the heyday of Rachel Carson, for instance, who blew the whistle on uh, farm chemicals. And, um, and then Adele Davis, who started to write cookbooks about using all natural ingredients and no artificial anything and no, you know, no rush, you know, no sugar. And, you know, I, I was fascinated by that. And then it was also during the political upheavals of the Vietnam War and of all of the protests in the farm fields by um, Cesar Chavez. And we'd sit around and have, you know, in college and have these long discussions um, about how personal um, the political is. And, and we talked a lot about the politics of food. Um, and so, you know, what's going on right now is, is very familiar to me. I mean, that's what I, I sort of grew up with. That was my lifeblood. And, and I wanted to, like Alice's restaurant, I wanted to make my own bread. I wanted to be part of the work that Molly Katzen was doing, you know, Enchanted Broccoli Forest and Moosewood Cookbook and, and Alice Waters and things like that. So, you know, these are cookbooks that greatly influenced me. And then there are another of other writers. I began to branch out and look intentionally for food writers. Jane Grigson, who was a British food writer and um, uh, MFK Fisher, who, you know, was really sort of put food rap writing, good food writing on America's literary map. I mean, she was the first person to really consider writing about food to be, you know, just as valuable as writing the great American novel. Um, and then there was Lori Colin, um, whose work I, I really, really admire. She passed on at a very early age, but she wrote for Gourmet Magazine. She has two cookbooks. One's called Home Cooking and the other is called More Home Cooking. And she had a column in Gourmet Magazine. And Gourmet was a wonderful, wonderful magazine. It was a treasure um, because it wrote, it put food in a cultural context, in a historical context. It wasn't just about cranking out a recipe. It was creating something. And um, so I read Gourmet voraciously. Um, and Lori Colin had a number of short stories in The New Yorker, a number of award-winning collections. Um, she was very literary, but she was also a really good food writer. So those are some of the people that I followed and, um, and continue to be inspired by. You know, now we have Michael Pollan, who's amazing, and um, oh, Mark Bittman's a wonderful writer. I mean, all of those writers greatly influenced me. Beth, I want to talk a little bit about your most recent cookbook, The Perennial Kitchen. Can you talk yeah. to our listeners about that and tell us what that's about? You know, there's so much work going on by our farmers, by our tribes to, again, bring more of these perennials that are really appropriate for our areas into farms and onto the land. And so um, that the focus of that book is to talk about a lot of the foods people that do just that you know, that provide all of these ecological services that can help interrupt that growing of corn and soy um, and bring them into the kitchen. I mean, what do you do with kerns of flour? What do you do with buckwheat flour? What do you do with oat flour? Those kinds of things. So it's a cook's guide to those ingredients. Um, there are recipes for, um, a lot of recipes for hazelnuts, for instance, which are a wonderful, wonderful crop. And we're seeing those return big time to the Midwest, the upper Midwest, because we do have, you know, these wonderful indigenous varieties of uh, hazelnuts. And, and hazelnuts, interestingly, are the fastest growing section in the um, plant protein category. Um, and so, and most of us, something like 
95% of the hazelnuts in the United States that you, you find in packages or in grocer's bins come from Turkey. They're being imported from Turkey. Oregon, Oregon grows a number of hazelnuts, but the Midwest has terrific opportunities to grow more. So those are really valuable plant. Um, I also have information about the heritage varieties of corn, especially the field corn, the dried corn for use in polenta and um, uh, corn cakes and um, cornbread. And then uh, the different berry fruits that are perennials, um, as well as the, uh, all of the field corns and the, uh, the beans. Um, I know that, for instance, Rancho Gorda does a great job with those dried beans. Well, there are lots of farmers that are growing really, really good um, beans to dry, and those are terrific nitrogen fixers. So yeah. they return to the soil what the field corn takes out, extracts. So those are, you know, when those are planted, um, you know, in rotation, they can do a lot of good on the land. So the, the book is sort of a, a cook's guide to those different, um, those different ingredients that are available to us now, that it, it's just a way to raise awareness and maybe get people excited about adding more of that variety to, um, to what we're cooking with. Beth, what's next for you? Ah, <laughs> you're so nice to ask, thanks. Well, that, uh, that memoir, um, the collection of essays in Winter's Kitchen, um, I'm working on sort of a sequel to that with, nice. um, with, with Kip and, uh, you know, it began with our work on bare bones, but it also explores the backstory to a lot of the work that I did for the perennial kitchen. So it's stories of the growers that I worked with and the tribes that I've been involved with and who are these people and how did they get into this work and what did they learn from it and what have I learned from them? So it's those essays. And then um, I just began research on a book with Gary Paul Nabom, who some of your listeners may be familiar with. He's written a lot about local food and he's an ethnobotanist. And so that book will be focused on these drought resilient plants that grow especially well in dry areas. Um, oh, like no, I, where I live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exa I mean, they're so appropriate for that. We, you know, we need to yeah. be growing these. We need to get more of these on the land. So we'll be working with, um, you know, a variety of those crops, especially those that come from drier parts of the world, but are growing in all of our region, our dry regions now. So, and what are they and what do you do with them? And, uh, you know, that, and then the stories of the cuisines that they've come from. Um, and, oh, I do have a book coming out that I wrote with um, Loretta Oden, who was Sean Sherman's mentor. Um, oh, wow. She's, yeah, she's a wonderful woman. She was one of the um, one of the sort of foremothers of um, the indigenous food sovereignty movement. She now heads the kitchen, or she's now the head chef at the um, uh, First America's Museum at the restaurant called um, Thirty Nine because it represents the Thirty Nine tribes that landed in Oklahoma City, which is where that uh, museum and restaurant are. She's from Oklahoma originally. Um, but she had the first pre-colonial indigenous restaurant in Santa Fe called Corn Dance. And so that's the name of the book. And the book is really her recipes, but also her memories and um, stories of bringing this food forward. She's a wonderful woman and she's very funny. So, yeah. That sounds wonderful. I hope we get to have you back on the program with your new books when they come out. I'd love to. I really want to... I want to thank you for your work. I've been so excited to read your work. I think it's some of the most invigorating reading I've had 
uh, you know, with food writing in a long time. So thank you for it. Uh, again, thank you for being on the podcast. And I want to mention to the listeners that all of these books will be listed in the bio. So you could just uh, click and go right to uh, Amazon to purchase them. Beth, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Dean. Thanks so much. What a pleasure. Take thank care. You, you too. Bye. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with author Beth Dooley. We're going to have links for her books in the bio. Check those out. You won't be disappointed. Next week, we're going to be talking to Suzanne Cope, whose book Power Hungry details the Black Panther breakfast program of the 1960s. I hope to have you with us next week. I hope you've enjoyed this program today. Until then, I'll see you at the library. <laughs>